Good morning. Uh, love it. Uh, for those of you who uh, I haven't met, my name is Dan An. Uh, I'm a member here at Cornerstone, and it is my great privilege to be able to bring the Word of God to you all this morning. Um, this part of passing the peace and getting out of the aisles, and it's one of my favorite parts, and just kind of, I wish it would last longer. You know, I didn't mean to come up here and ruin it. Uh, I just wanted to watch, because I think I just, I love it so much. Um, uh, would you all be able to stand with me for the reading of God's Word from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 to 16? For those of you with physical Bibles, I'll give you a second to find your place. Again, it's 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 to 16, and the least helpful instruction here would be it's before 2 Timothy, so uh, do that what you may. <laughs> Hear the reading of God's Word. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. The grass withers and the flower fails, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Please be seated. Let me pray for us before opening God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your grace of Sundays, Sunday worship. Help us to see it clearly, that it's not a ritual, it's not part of our culture, but it's the God of the universe who extends grace to his people, and you invite us to come because you know that we need you. And sometimes we forget that we need you, and I pray, O oh Lord, that you would give us grace, remind us how gracious, how loving, how beautiful you are, and how desperately we need you. As the word is preached this morning, I pray that you would open our eyes, our lives filled with distractions, weaknesses, despair, discouragement. I pray, Lord, that you would uplift us this morning, reminding us the God of the universe, he holds us in his hands. He will not let us go. Help us to hear the word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> in 1978, 1978 um, future president at that time of North Korea, Kim Jong-il, he thought, I don't know why, that it would be a good idea to kidnap a very famous South Korean actress. Her name was Che Eun-hee. So he kidnaps this woman, South Korean actress, Che Eun-hee, brings her to North Korea, and she has no idea why she's there. No idea why she's there. But one night, he decides to throw this lavish party. And when she's there, there these people that she doesn't know are coming up to her. And they're like, oh, this night is going to be so wonderful for you. And she's like, what? What? I'm kidnapped. Like, what could be wonderful? And then all of a sudden, people in the room start to applaud. Because somebody comes into the room. And to her surprise, standing across from her is a man named Shin Sang-ok. Shin Sang-ok. Now, Shin Sang-ok is a famous South Korean filmmaker. And it turns out that Kim Jong-il also kidnapped this man and brought him to North Korea. And it also turns out that these two were actually ex-spouses, ex-husband, ex-wife. And the people around them are clapping, saying, oh, how wonderful of a reunion this is of ex-lovers. You see, Kim Jong-il brought them together because he wanted them to be a couple again. And the people around them are applauding how wonderful this reunion is. And you hear the story and you're like, what? Like, what is happening? This is the most delusional thing I've ever heard in my life. Like, 
I, I don't understand um, the fact that you would think that kidnapping two people is something to be applauded and then to to, to force a, a union of ex-lovers like that's something to be celebrated is just absolutely outrageous. And I share the story because, again, it's a picture of absolute delusion, a picture of like a total lack of seeing clearly. And in First Timothy chapter 1, verse 15 to 16, we see a person who is the total opposite of delusional, a person who's totally opposite, a person who sees so clearly, a person who sees so soberly. And the Apostle Paul invites us to do likewise. He invites us to do likewise. The gospel truth this morning is this, is our sin is real. Our sin is real and God's grace helps us to see our sin clearly and gives us grace to show others God's grace. Our sin is real and God's grace helps us to see our sin clearly and helps us to go show others God's grace. Three points to help bring this out. Three points to bring this out. The first is a sober view of our sin. Second is a sober view of ourself. And the third is a sober view of others. Again, it's a sober view of sin, a sober view of self, and a sober view of others. First Timothy chapter one, verse 15 reads, the saying is trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And I think one of the hardest things to understand, not understand intellectually, but the hardest thing to grasp, the hardest thing to believe is this concept of sin. It's this concept of sin. You see, I don't know about you, but I know for me, my tendency is to try to reduce sin, is try to reduce sin into an action. It's to try to take this understanding of sin and reduce it to a mere action. So for example, what is sin? It's to break God's law, right? What is sin at its basic fundamental core? It's to break God's law. And so what does God's law say? You shall not lie. Oh, I lied, therefore I sinned. God's law says you shall not be angry. Oh, I'm angry and therefore I sinned. But scripture has a different definition, a much deeper understanding of what sin is. You see, again, fundamentally, what is sin? It's breaking God's law. But in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus says, he summarizes the law for us. He summarizes the law and he says, the law is this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So bear with me, because I'm making kind of a couple jumps here. What is, what does it mean? What does it mean to break God's law? What does it mean to sin? It means to break God's law. What is God's law summarized? To love something, to love someone other than God, to see them as the savior, to worship, to trust something other than God. And so you see this stuff about anger and this stuff about lying. These things in itself, yes, they are negative actions, but in reality, what is happening is there is something that you love. There is something that you worship that when something gets in your way, that's why you get angry. There's something that you worship, something that you trust. And when something gets in your way, that is why you lie. Let me give a concrete example because I'm saying a lot here, but let me try to give a very concrete example. Last week, my wife and I, we got into an argument and uh, it was bad. It was a really bad argument. It was probably going to make our top five highlight reels of how bad the argument was. And um, I, I was angry. You know, I was so angry. Thank God for my wife who is patient and gentle with me, although in that moment we weren't patient with each other. Um, but when we reconciled, you know, I said to her, you know, I'm sorry I got angry. I'm sorry I got angry. But you know what's interesting is like reflecting on this passage, thinking through what sin is, it made me ask this question like, Dan, not just 
asking sorry for anger, but why did I get so angry? Why was I so mad? And by God's grace, you know what he revealed to my sinful heart is this, is that, do you know what I love? Do you know what I love? I love control and I love respect. And when I felt disrespected, when I felt like I was losing control, I was willing to sacrifice my relationship with my wife so I could have it. This is sin in its nature. It is not an action. It is what do you love? What do you trust? What do you worship? You know what the ironic thing about this is, is that all the things that we try to replace God with, all the things that we try to put in the place of God, for example, things like sex, money, love, trust, respect, um, it's, it's a list, so I forget what I said and haven't said. Um, all of those things, money, power, all of these things. And the list goes on and on and on, right? The list goes on and on. All these things that we try to put in the place of God, the things that we say, if I have this, if I can attain this, then I will be whole. If I can have this, then I will be a complete person. Then I'll be worth something. All these things that we try to pursue, all these things, you know what the ironic part is? Is that all of these things are created. All of these things are created. And so we exchange the creator. We exchanged the creator God for his creation. And we put them in the place of God and said, I want this. I want this so much that I'm willing to do whatever it takes to get it. But here's the thing. The created things, they make for terrible gods. The great, many things are great tools, but they make for terrible gods. Because let's just take the example for money. Do you know what money says? Money says to us, hey, do you want me? Do you want to find me? Do you want to attain me? Come. Come sacrifice. Come lay yourself on the altar. Come sacrifice your life so that you can have me. Do you want money? Come sacrifice your time. Come sacrifice your well-being. Come sacrifice your family. Come sacrifice. Come lay yourself down. Lay your life down, and then you can have me. But what does 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15 say? It says that Christ came into the world for sinners. The created things can never save. What does Jesus say? He says, do you want me? Do you want to find me? Do you want to be whole? I will come into the world. I will lay myself at the altar. I will sacrifice myself to give you myself so you can have me. Here is the creator. Here is the God of the universe. Here is Christ Almighty coming and saying for sinners, do you want to find me? Unlike those other gods, I lay myself down. I give myself to you so that you can have me. This is what it means to have a sober view of sin. This is what it means to have a sober view of sin. It means that sin is not a mere action, but sin is worshiping something other than God. But it also means, friends, when we have a sober view of sin, it also means that these things that we worship, we know can never save. The one who can save came into the world to save sinners, to not only forgive our sins, but to give us himself. This is what it means to have a sober view of sin. The question is, how do you know whether or not you have a sober view of sin? How do you know whether or not you have a sober view of sin? It's because you begin to develop a sober view of self. How do you know you have a sober view of sin? Because our second point, you begin to develop a sober view of yourself. There's this, uh, in philosophy, I was a philosophy major, there's this story that you know, I always found to be fascinating. It's called the Ring of Gyges. Right? The story's called the Ring of Gyges, and basically it says that there was a man who is a virtuous man, an upright standing citizen, and he goes and he finds this cave, and inside of the cave he finds a corpse, and on the corpse is a ring. And he takes that ring and he discovers that when he wears the ring, he becomes invisible. 
And this upright, upstanding, virtuous man, now with the power and visibility, goes and commits atrocious things, seduces the queen, murders the king, takes over the power. And the question ultimately comes down to this. The Ring of Gaijis asked this question. Are you as good as you think you are? Are you as good as you think you are? Or are you this way because you have all these social restraints, you know, all these kinds of things? Are you as good as you think you are? And in verse 15, I think Paul would say, absolutely not. Paul would say, absolutely not. Why? Because he says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Other translations, perhaps you've heard this, he says, of which I am chief. I'm the chief of sinners. Or in plain language, it's I am the worst sinner. This is the apostle Paul we're talking about. He says, Christ came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst one. When you have a sober view of sin, you begin to see yourself clearly. Why? Why is this the case? Because what, is, what does Christ say? It says Christ came into the world to save sinners. What does that mean? It means that, look, all of me, all of you is laid bare before the Lord. There are dark corners that we know of ourselves. There are dark corners of ourselves that we don't even know, that we're terrified to look at because we're terrified of what we'll find. Do you know who's seen it all? It's Jesus Christ. Do you think you surprise him with the dark corners? Contrary to that, when it says that Christ came to save sinners, it means that he's seen all of you, every nook and cranny of you. He said, I love you. I will come into the world so I can save you, so I can have you in my family. This is the kind of love that we receive in Christ. And do you know what that enables you to do? Think about Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, what do they do? When the Lord comes into the garden, what do they do? They hide. They hide. And then when the Lord says, Adam, what happened? He says, the woman you gave me, she made me eat it. Right? He's so desperate to hide himself, so desperate to shift the blame. But when we understand that we are loved with a love that is never letting go of us, a love that is so deep, a love that has seen it all, that there's no surprises, there's no takebacks, a love that holds us. We're able to dig deep into our hearts. We're able to dig deep into our hearts. And you know what we discover? Is that we are not all that lovely, that we are much worse than we think we are. Let me try to give a concrete uh, example here. Why are you nice? If you're not nice, it doesn't work, but hopefully, why are you nice? You know, you might say, it's nice to be nice. Great, awesome. But is it possible, right? Is it possible? I say this gently. Is it possible that the reason you are nice is because you have a deep longing and a love to be liked? Is it possible that you are nice because you have a deep longing love of being liked? And so when you look at the people in front of you, you don't care about them. You don't care and you don't actually love them. You only actually love yourself. And so therefore, when you talk to people, do you find that you're never able to tell them, tell a person, a friend, what they need to hear and you only tell them what they want to hear? Is it possible in your conversations that you only tell people what they want to hear rather than what they need to hear? Because if you told them what they needed to hear, then what? They might not like you. Is it possible that when you're nice to somebody and somebody is unkind, somebody's cruel, somebody's rude back to you, that you then say in your mind, this person is dead to me. Why? Because they're not liking me the way I want them to. I'll give another example. Why are you generous? 
Why are you generous with others? He might say, God calls us to be generous, and if so, praise the Lord. But is it possible that we're generous with others as a means to purchase the respect that I so long for, that I so long to love? I love being respected, and so therefore I'm generous with others. Because I know then people will look at me and say, wow, that person is somebody. When we dig down deep, held by God's grace, when we explore the dark nook of our corners, what we find very quickly is that even our most righteous actions, they're tainted by sin. When we know that we're loved by Christ in this way, we're able to say alongside Paul, I am the worst sinner. I am the foremost of sinners. This is what it means to have a sober view of self. When you have a sober view of sin, you understand, hey, sin is not doing a wrong action. It's loving something other than God. But I know that these, things, these other things cannot save. Only Christ can save, and he came and he saved me. And then I have a sober view of myself. Look, I am far worse than I think that I am. And I know that because he saved me. Right? When we understand these things, I think something wonderful begins to happen. But before we talk about that, before we talk about that, I want to bring one point of application. Just one quick point of application It's this, is that when I talk about digging deep into the, the, the dark corners of our hearts that we're so desperate to hide from people, so desperate to not admit, like, who likes this? This is not fun. But doing that and bringing about deep repentance, right? Like, I think there's a reason why we say things like, oh, uh, God, I'm sorry, I got angry. Please forgive me, right? That, that repentance took all of one second. That was one and a half seconds. Easy, on-the-go repentance, right? Real repentance, digging deep, finding out what is it that you actually love. That takes time. It takes effort. It takes energy. And it's difficult because many of you are busy. You're incredibly busy. And the distractions are number the stars at this point. But the application is this, is I urge you, friends, do not let the busyness of life, do not let the distractions of life prevent you from experiencing the deep riches of God's grace in Christ for you. Right? This takes time. This takes dedicated effort. And I want to encourage you that if this is something that you'd like to explore, which I pray that you do, is to check out a resource called How People Change by Paul Tripp and Tim Lane. I think that's what it's called. It's called How People Change. It's, got, it's very minimalistic, three trees. Um, and it, it's, I think it would be a helpful resource, especially as, if you, as you dig through this deeply uh, as a point of application. I want to summarize just really quickly before we get to our third point. Again, what does it mean to have a sober view of sin? It means that, look, I understand that sin is not an action. Sin is loving something other than God. But I also know that God, that these things cannot save. Only Christ can save, and he came to save me. What does it mean to have a sober view of self? Because I know I am loved, I'm able to go dig deep. I'm able to freely admit with the Apostle Paul, I am the worst sinner that I know. Sober view of self. And when we have a sober view of self, we cannot help but have a sober view of others. It will inevitably lead to have a sober view of others. When I left ministry, well, I don't know how many years ago now, but when I left ministry and went into the corporate world, I was invited to my first corporate um, company happy hour. And I was so excited. I was like, ooh, I've only seen these things in the TV shows. You know, I went from uh, high school to college to seminary, and so I never had a chance to, you know, try these happy hour things out. I was super excited. And I go out, <clears throat> and again, uh, very sheltered uh, person. Uh, I go out to this happy hour, and I'm standing with coworkers, and uh, they're cursing like sailors and uh, making inappropriate comments about coworkers. And 
I'm just sitting there like, ha, 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 ha. Like, I feel so awkward. Like, I am a fish out of water. I have no idea how to interact with these people that are so unlike me. Because again, like, I grew up a pretty sheltered life, I think. And I remember thinking, and this is to my shame, I remember thinking like, wow, these people are heathens. I gotta get out of here. I remember pushing them, you know, aside. And then ironically, ironically, uh, I found other coworkers that were more like me, right? And then I started talking trash about them, right? Ironically, right? Like the very thing I was condemning, I went and did. I say this to my shame. I say this because it was clearly wrong, but I also invite you to this. Am I alone in this? Am I alone in feeling this way? That when there's somebody that you see that doesn't quite fit the mold of what you think a person should be, somebody that, you know, even Christians that don't quite fit the mold of what you think a Christian should be, we ostracize them, we hold them at arm's length, we keep them away and we say, oh. If so, if so, friends, then we are totally, totally missing the point of verse 16. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 16 says this, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience for those who are to believe in him for eternal life. What is Paul saying? What is Paul saying here? He's saying this. He's saying, look, I am the worst sinner that I know, and Christ came to save me. I'm the worst sinner that I know, and Christ came to save me. And that means it calls me, and now he calls me. The very purpose, the very reason for this is so that when I look at anybody, when I look at everybody, I might be able to show them the very same kind of grace, love, mercy, and compassion on which Christ had upon me, the worst of sinners. That's what Paul's saying in a nutshell. What does it mean to have a sober view of others? It's super simple. What does it mean to have a sober view of others? It means that you look at other people and you see them and you treat them with the same kind of mercy, love, compassion, and kindness that we have received in Jesus Christ. Right? It's very simple. It's not like some crazy science thing that we have to do here, right? It's very, very simple logic. Now, this illustration uh, is, spoiler alert, um, there's a new TV show called Beef. Um, it's been out for about 10 days, which in Netflix world, that's like a year, okay? So if you haven't watched it, <laughs> sorry. Uh, uh, I'll try to be vague, okay? Um, but in this show, Beef, right, it, it, it brings these two characters, two main characters. They seem like total polar opposites. One is wealthy, married, has her life together. And then on the other hand, you have a person who is poor and who just is struggling to get their life together, right? You got these two polar opposite people. And then throughout the TV show, they hate each other, right? Beef, they hate each other. And then at the end, what ends up happening is that there is a scene, it's very artsy, very weird, but <laughs> the guy and the girl, at one point they start literally speaking for the other person, right? So when the guy speaks, he's literally speaking the girl's words and the girl speaks, she's speaking the guy's words. Very artsy stuff. But I think what it's trying to show here is that this guy and this girl that seem like total polar opposites, people who hated each other, all of a sudden realize what? They're not all that different. They're not all that different. And they begin to have compassion, we can have sympathy for one another. What is Paul calling us to? What does our sin, what does a sober view of self demand? It means that as I dig deep, as I dig deeper into my heart, as I see just how sinful, just how broken I am, I'm able to look at anybody. I'm able to look at anybody in my life and I can look at you and I can say, I can have compassion, I can have sympathy and I can have love for you. Why? Why? It's because when I look at you, when I look at anybody, you seem broken. You seem broken. But you know what? I know that I'm broken. You seem broken, but I know that I'm broken. And yet I'm loved to the skies. I'm loved to the skies. And I want to share that love with you. 
This is what it means, friends. This is what it means. One point of application before we close is this, and uh, this is applicable to everybody and anybody, but uh, especially I think for Korean Americans in our context. <clears throat> I was speaking uh, with this one Korean woman and uh, she said, um, I don't like golfing with Korean ladies at my church anymore. And I said, oh, okay, that's interesting. And she said, I like golfing with white people. And I said, okay, uh, I don't, that went, uh, wow, we went a thousand real quick. Um, and she said, the reason why is because whenever I golf with the church ladies at my church, all they do is gossip the entire time. To which I said, for 18 holes, that's like six hours. <laughs> it's a ridiculous amount of time. Uh, they, they gossip the whole time. And, and you know, like the, the application here is not do not gossip, although you shouldn't, right? The application is not do not gossip, although you shouldn't, but gossip. Right, which I think for many, again, Korean Americans growing up in church, I think we were exposed to a lot of this, right? But what is gossip? What does gossip reveal at its fundamental point? What does it reveal? It reveals what? A lack of love, a lack of compassion, a lack of mercy, a lack of sympathy, right? Is it possible, is it possible that growing up in a Korean church context, that perhaps the primary way in which Christianity was expressed was by doing acts of service? serving, doing things, but then love of people was kind of like pushed to the back seat. Is it possible then that being children of some of those parents, perhaps even you were in that, is it possible that we've inherited this kind of culture of Christianity? One that is all about doing, but when it comes to loving, we say, yeah, forget that. If so, and again, this is not just for Koreans. This is not just for Korean Americans. This is for all people because it is much easier to serve than to love. And if that is us, if that is you, I know it's me, then we must repent, right? We need to repent because what does it mean? What does it mean to have a love of others? It means, first of all, I know my own sin. I know I'm broken. I was loved to the skies. And it means when I look at other people, I can have incredible love, incredible compassion, the incredible sympathy that I received in Jesus Christ. Friends, three points summarized one more time. What is sin? What does it mean to have a sober view of sin? Sin is not a mere action. It's loving, trusting something other than God. But it also means that these things, these things that I worship, they cannot save. Only Christ can save and he came and he rescued me. When you understand that, we can have a sober view of yourself. You dig deep, you realize I'm a broken man and you only realize that because you know you're held onto by Christ. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And when you realize that, you cannot help but see others with sobriety see others soberly, to see others, and to have a love, compassion, a sympathy, and kindness because we received it ourselves. Me, you, the worst of sinners. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, every time we hear a sermon, easier said than done. Easier said than done. But it's worse than that. Impossible said than done unless you come and intervene, unless you come and open our hearts and help us to see not only our own sinfulness, but your incredible graciousness towards us in Christ. Help us to see clearly, help us to see clearly our sin, help us to see clearly ourselves, help us to see clearly others, because we know you have seen us clearly and you love us to the skies. Give us grace this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.